Welcome to Debased, a show about the current state of money with Jeff Deist. Welcome back to Debased. My name is Benjamin Vern Adelstein. I'm joined by Jeff Deist. Jeff, how are you doing today? Ben, it is good to see you as always on Fridays. Jeff, lots going on here, and I want to let people listen over the weekend to lots of things. And you texted me, Ben, I want to talk about the four paths you see that the dollar could possibly take. And I want to kind of get your opinion. What what are these four directions you think the dollar might be going? Yeah, I've been working on this this week, the idea that there's there's maybe four possible futures for the U.S. dollar. And I think that they uh, all enjoy different degrees of likelihood. But uh, maybe we start by this whole idea of why is the dollar so strong to begin with? And believe it or not, I think this indictment that's coming this, this coming week of Donald Trump is actually the kind of thing we need to be thinking about as dollar holders, as investors, as people who like gold or Bitcoin or equities or bonds or whatever you know people happen uh, to think is their own personal path forward. I mean, we have to step back sometimes and, and think, not in a macro sense, almost in a geopolitical sense. So why does the dollar have value? Well, we know there's a variety of reasons, everything from the Bretton Woods Agreement that created the world's reserve currency to the strength of the U.S. economy, the breadth and depth of it, which is not, no joke. Uh, the U.S. military, are, you know, our uh, prowess around the world. So all of these things matter. But, you know, there's more to it than that. Why does money and capital continue to flow into the U.S.? And why does it actually intensify during times of, let's say, economic crisis or geopolitical crisis? Well, there's there's some reasons, but first and foremost is that we, relative to other countries, have enjoyed throughout, throughout the 20th century, uh, you know, the rule of law and the enforcement of contract rights, the enforcement of property rights, perhaps to a degree that no other Western country has. And so as a result of that, people want to hold U.S. Treasury debt. They want to hold U.S. dollars. We've benefited enormously from that. But you start to see cracks in this foundation, Ben. For example, uh, this prosecution of Donald Trump. Now, depending on where you stand, if you're a progressive, you're probably thinking to yourself, why did it take this long? He's an obvious criminal. If you're a conservative, you might be saying this is purely selective enforcement. Why was Hillary never indicted and charged for some of her crimes or alleged crimes? Why is the Biden family never investigated and charged for any of their dealings with Ukraine or Hunter Biden or this or that? And so while prosecutions and the use of the Justice Department, the use of federal law enforcement agencies like the FBI, these may all have always have been political. What's different today is that the perception that it's purely political, it's changing. So the idea that America is a banana republic, this is what I'm hearing right-wingers saying today in response to these uh, forthcoming Trump indictments. And then when you look at things beyond just the political machinations of whatever gang is sort of running the, the White House and the executive agencies, you know, you take things like uh, contractual rights or property rights. We had a, a moratorium on rent payments and mortgage interest during COVID. Uh, we are seeing stores, uh, retail stores, uh, drug stores, for example, apparel stores around the United States ransacked and looted. We're seeing certain states like Washington and California decide not to prosecute or charge felonies uh, below a certain amount of shoplifting, like $1,000, which is pretty robust if you go into Target or CVS or Whole Foods. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. 
And, you know, you start to see big corporations uh, flirt with all kinds of woke type marketing. You see uh, drug stores, for example, putting more and more merchandise behind these weird locks where you have to go in and ask an employee. And um, you start to say, well, contract rights and the rule of law are not as robust in the United States as they once were. If I'm investing in a stock, let's say, uh, a publicly held company like Target, you know, I part, part of my investment assumes that shoplifting will not be rampant. Part of my investment assumes that uh, they won't piss off 40% of America with LGBT-themed clothing or wh whatever it might be. And some of these assumptions are being tested. And so if more people in the United States and around the world increasingly perceive the United States as having politicized uh, its judicial system, as having politicized law enforcement uh, and, and not having the rule of law property rights and contract rights to the extent we thought that those were really rock solid features of American life, you know, that's going to add cost. That's going to add transaction costs to everything we do as Americans. Insurance will go up, uh, security will go up, and we'll all pay for that in the form of higher prices, you know, apart from and separate, wholly separate from anything the Fed might be doing or the Treasury might be doing. So uh, I really think that this Trump indictment and these kinds of tremors that are further dividing the U.S. electorate uh, is not good for the future of the dollar. So I think that's a lot of our assumptions that we've enjoyed holding for many, many decades. We have to begin to challenge and say, you know, what does this mean for us as investors? What does it mean for the dollar? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we are seeing the things that made America such a great place to have assets, to hold assets, to build wealth and to create wealth slowly begin to erode, and the Trump indictment might be, you know, the zeitgeist at the moment saying, look, this rule of law that has not been politicized like it has been in other countries, people might start to say, well, what's the real difference between a Brazil and a United States? If they're both going after political competitors at the end of the day, you know, mm -hmm. who has the more resources, who has a better um, safety of the assets? And this is an interesting thing that I know you touch on, Jeff, which is how did countries become rich? How did places like Singapore and South Korea and Japan grow their wealth? And most of the time, the answer is pretty simple. They had rule of law and they opened their capital accounts so that people could safely invest and know that their investments would be safe. And that's why places like Hong Kong, which had essentially no infrastructure or anything to it whatsoever, became a huge financial hub, as did Singapore, as did South Korea. And what do you notice about those places? They have Western financial rule of law. Uh, and, and do you see that as a deterioration happening, Trump indicting and the Trump kind of weaponization of the DOJ being kind of the, the beginning of the end for that? Well, I hope not for the sake of, of our, this country and our future. It's very, very important that, you know, maybe um, people in the East are going to turn out to be better Westerners than we are. And look, if you look at something like Singapore, particularly Japan, there wasn't much there. I mean, the United States has two vast oceans. We have uh, millions of acres of arable farmland. We have timber, we have oil, we have natural gas. Um, we have you know, relatively friendly neighbors in Canada and Mexico. It's very hard to invade us. I mean, America has so much going for it on paper geographically, apart from its people and its governance. When you look at a place like Japan, which came out of World War II, just absolutely devastated. 
They have no farmland, no oil, no natural resources. They're on this mountainous little island. And just through sheer willpower and hard work, um, they managed to become a, a global superpower. Um, Singapore, you know, I've read a couple of biographies of Lee Kuan Yew, not the most touchy-feely guy from a, a Western democratic perspective, let's be fair. But nonetheless, again, taking a swampy place without much in the, in the form of resources as recently as the 1960s and creating what we think of today as Singapore, I mean, that's, that's a real achievement. And so um, you would say, uh, you know, that Singapore for the past several decades has been on the upswing. Would you say that about the United States? Um, that's, that's starting to be a pretty open question. So, it, you know, it, it takes more than just infrastructure. Uh, it, it takes a lot. And the question of, of how did we get so rich and what if it all went away? Um, it doesn't just sustain itself. You know, you don't just wake up in the morning and have a Starbucks on every corner and uh, electricity at your fingertips and hot and cold running water and grocery stores full of an unbelievable variety of food um, and, you know, in insanely uh, technologically advanced smartphones in your hands that can tell you almost everything. I mean, these are miracles. And of course, it's human nature that we get used to being surrounded by these miracles. So we take them for granted. OK, we're, we're human beings. But. I really do think that's an important question. Uh, America has serious social, cultural, political divisions, and all of those would be deeply exacerbated by any kind of real uh, diminution in our material lifestyles. Uh, that's, that's not a joke. That's something I think we ought to take seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a Thomas Sowell book. I'm and you should just read every Thomas Sowell book and you'll find out where it is. So in the comments, tell me uh, what Thomas Sowell book I'm thinking of. But Thomas Sowell makes an interesting point about the actual geography of Africa and how, for example, there aren't many rivers that go deep into Africa without having large uh, drop offs, uh, sometimes called waterfalls. And <laughs> there's mosquitoes that kill people and don't allow cattle to bring you know, food or, or travel. And so there's actual geographical issues in a country or, or a nation or a region, and those will actually stop them from gaining wealth. Uh, America not only has none of those issues, but that kind of unique rule of law has, has created such an environment that it in some ways seems like we are completely forgetful of how we got here, why it's so important, and why for so long property rights and the rule of law and contract law has created one of the you know most successful financial mm -hmm. hubs the world has ever seen. It feels like people are forgetful of that or complacent or used to that. And unfortunately, we can't have that if we expect well, to continue the standard of living that we have. I mean, let's just take a small guy or gal example. Let's say a person of pretty modest means and income uh, goes out and buys a small duplex for investment purposes, thinking that this you know, will appreciate in value and that over the years, they'll pay the mortgage off to their tenants and that they'll have an asset that later in life may provide them uh, cash income or something they can sell for a capital gain to help fund their retirement. You know, we're just talking about an average person, not a, not a rich uh, person. And so all of a sudden, you know, they, they have to assume that if the tenants don't pay their rent or if the tenants trash the place, that there will be a, a pretty straightforward legal mechanism, uh, an eviction process, which isn't too lengthy which will allow them 
to move to move on with their investment. But what if during you know COVID comes along and all of a sudden you have somebody living in there for two years rent free, and and the whole economics of the deal of you buying the duplex was that it was a break even proposition with the rent, and now you're hemorrhaging money. I mean, you know, take something small like that as an example of how important. Uh, these rules really are, uh, and then multiply that across the economy. And it, it's a it's a serious question, and I think it's something that we have to understand and grapple with. It's not it's not an abstraction. It's very real. Absolutely, I know lots of cities around the United States are working their best to regulate or ban ride sharing, for example. Well, that actually has a material harm not only to the people who would love to drive for Uber and make some extra money on the side but also for the ability for people to transport in a way they'd like to transport, Airbnb being another easy example. If the government says, well, anything that is a short-term rental under one month is illegal because whatever, you're competing with uh, the hotel monopoly in our, in our state, that is just detrimental to the economic well-being of, not, like you're saying, not incredibly wealthy people. This is not Jeff Bezos who is, is harmed by Airbnb's policies. It's by people who would otherwise make this you know, rental income or this passive income through something like an Airbnb. And when you see something like squatters rights or a rent moratorium, this is just harming those those very same people that supposedly these laws are are enacted to help. Well, and I, I would add that if we think back now, everything's simple in hindsight, but the brilliance of an Uber or an Airbnb in utilizing resources that were otherwise sitting around, basically fallow all over this country, Millions of cars are sitting in garages or in workplace parking lots all day long, unused, while other people need rides, right? You can say the same thing about uh, Airbnbs. And in a, in a sense, that's part of what we're trying to do at Monetary Metals. There's you know, thousands of tons of gold sitting around. It's an asset. It, has, it can be utilized to finance inventory or to finance uh, a company in the form of a bond. And so why why don't we pull some of that value out of it let, rather than letting it sit around fa- fallow? But um, it, yeah, it's, it's really interesting how uh, sometimes progress happens kicking and screaming when it comes to government. Yeah, absolutely. I found Uber and Airbnb such incredible examples and for monetary metals, an interesting model how a private business revolutionized whole economies. I mean, taxis and the taxi monopoly are entirely gone. Um, hotels are now competing heavily with Airbnbs across the, across the globe. Um, so now that we're thinking about all these regulations and these kind of rule of law, let's talk about your four things that you possibly think the dollar could be headed. I, I, you said you have four ideas. Let's hear, Jeff Deist, four ideas of where you think the dollar might be going. Yes. So I think the future of the dollar takes one of these forms. And first and foremost, let's just say the status quo lasts a lot longer than we think. I think that's one very definite possibility for the future of the dollar. In other words, the dollar is not knocked off its pedestal. The dollar continues to be the world's reserve currency. Uh, Congress continues to spend beyond what it takes in tax revenues. We continue to promise and even pay entitlements wildly beyond uh, the actuarial realities of the next 50 years or whatever, and that nonetheless, the dollar hangs in there. That I think that's scenario number one. And that may sound far-fetched. Um, we like to think, you know, the famous economist Herb Stein, who's Ben Stein's dad, 
People know Ben Stein from Win Ben Stein's Money and from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, so the great Ben Stein, Ben Stein's pretty elderly now. He still writes, I think, for the American Spectator. Uh, but nonetheless, his father, Herb Stein, was an economist, and he was the head of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Nixon era. And so he had what was known as Stein's Law, which is uh, if something cannot continue, it will not. <laughs> so everyone thought, you know, this was like Nixon's like, why am I paying you? Um, but nonetheless, the idea that if something's unsustainable, it's got to come to an end. I think we all understand that conceptually. And we almost understand that in our bones. But nonetheless, you go back to 1971, uh, when foreign central banks were, could no longer redeem gold with the U.S. Fed, and Nixon severed you know, that last remaining tie of what we could call a, a gold redemption or a gold standard. Uh, a lot of people in hard money circles, a lot of really brilliant people, people like Doug Casey, uh, were predicting that this was going to mark the, the pretty rapid unraveling of the U.S. dollar as a dominant player and as a you know, good store of value and all this and that. And, and look, there were some rough times in the 1970s in terms of inflation, stagflation. So I'm, I'm not going to say that Doug Casey was entirely wrong, but it was incorrect that the dollar would lose its status when any uh, more connection to gold was severed. That didn't happen. That's what, almost 50 years now? I'm sorry, it's more than 50 years now since 1971. And here the dollar still is. And you know, you can talk to people like Keith Weiner. You can talk to people like Brent Johnson at Santiago Capital, and they will give you all kinds of reasons why uh, you know, knocking the US dollar off its pedestal as the world's reserve currency, as the currency that's needed to settle trades, to do business internationally, to buy oil, all kinds of things is actually very, very difficult. And so uh, the, the, the dollar's current status could go on for a long time. And an economic crisis, let's say on the level of 2008, that could actually bring a lot more money into the dollar as a relatively better run currency than, than some of the other major Western and you know the Chinese Yuan, the Japanese Yen, et cetera. So, um, and that may actually be the most likely scenario, let's say for the next decade, uh, the you know de-dollarization may not be happening uh, anytime as, as soon as we think it is. So that's my scenario number one: is that the status quo of the U.S. dollar lasts longer than we think. So Jeff, let me summarize that point there, which is that yes, the dollar does have problems, and in 1971, a bunch of very smart people went, "Whoa, we are severing the currency from the redeemability into gold." Now, of course, there were perversities before then, but at least there was still some connection. Foreign central banks could redeem their dollars for gold. Now, once that actually was severed by Nixon, most people thought, oh, this is the death of the dollar. The dollar's going to tank, and there's going to be a new currency or a new regime. And although there were issues, the dollar continued to live on as we continue to use it today, and actually higher in some cases than, than ever before. And Part of that reason, as, as Brent Johnson and Keith Weiner and, and many other people have pointed out, that there are structural issues with the dollar, but those structural issues are much worse in other countries like China, Russia, any competitor who would even have half of a chance. They're technically reliant on the U.S. dollar. Their currency is a derivative of the value of the U.S. dollar. So the chance that their currency overtakes the dollar, you would have to see something kind of big happen before 
you know, global trade was denominated in yuan or in yen or in rubles. And as of right now, for the next mm -hmm. decade, doesn't seem likely. Well, in in popular parlance, excuse my French, the currencies like the yuan are shit coins, right? They are bad derivatives of the U.S. dollar, but yet at the same time dependent on. And I would argue a lot of so-called cryptocurrencies are dependent on Bitcoin uh, for their existence. Now, I recently listened to a really interesting conversation on a podcast between a gentleman named Tom Luongo. Not sure if people are familiar with him. He's a really brilliant outside-the-box type thinker. Don't always agree with him. And our friend Caitlin Long, who runs uh, Custodia Bank, which is a sort of a, a venture in Wyoming that attempts to be a full reserve digital asset bank that she has gotten chartered under Wyoming law. And so she's a fascinating person. Uh, and so they were talking about, well, once, once that last tether to gold was severed in 71, gold lost all of its purpose. In other words, other than let's say it's jewelry uses, the, the entire reason for gold to exist in the monetary system is to act as a break on central bank or government spending and debt. And once gold ceased to do that, it, it's useless. It no longer has any purpose in the global financial system. And I thought that was an interesting point. But the counterpoint that immediately occurred to me was then why hasn't gold lost significant value in those 50 years since 1971? If it's no longer a tether on governments or central banks, and I fully admit it is no longer a tether on governments and central banks, although a lot of them are snapping it up of late. Um, you know, I thought you know, I thought that that was a point worth taking. I thought that was a good challenge to pro gold people like us. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, gold has hung in there uh, pretty darn well since '71. Yeah, gold does have this monetary quality, which you can see in its price. Um, if if gold truly were useless other than its jewelry demand, let's say, or its industrial demands. Um, its price would trade much differently. So clearly there is still some monetary value attached to gold. People are buying gold for other reasons than purely the supply and demand in the jewelry market. Now, gold has incredibly interesting stock to flow ratios and, and other interesting things that make it an interesting money. But to say that gold is completely useless the same way that copper is completely monetary useless, I, I don't think is the case. And obviously with monetary metals, we are working and showing the kind of plumbing of that working gold standard with financing, lending, interest payments, and, and wealth preservation all paid in gold. So, so, so Jeff, let's, let's go to your second uh, case scenario. First case scenario of the dollar, you know, that's got more kicks in the can than anyone could have guessed. Let's go to scenario number two. So scenario number two would be the other extreme. One would be the, the world using the dollar sort of remains as we know it. The other would be the complete demolition of the dollar and a completely new global reserve currency, probably under the auspices of somebody like the IMF or the World Bank. Now, this would be the scenario where we have a really severe economic crisis, maybe globally, worse than 2008. And so the dollar starts to uh, decline rapidly, not necessarily uh, only thinking in terms of, of versus other currencies, but against real goods and services, which it is already to an extent uh, in the past couple of years. And so here we would see uh, calls like we saw in 2008. For example, people don't know this, but the euro struggled mightily in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. That was a really rough time. And so what the Fed did 
uh, was it set up a liquidity swap arrangement whereby uh, the ECB was given lots and lots of US dollars in exchange for uh, euros and some interest, which was in fact paid. And the ECB in turn distributed those dollars to its own, to the various central banks within Europe and then on the commercial banks because they needed those for liquidity to keep maintaining trade. Now, the legality of this swap arrangement, in other words, who authorized this? Uh, well, you know, that takes us back to the rule of law question. Is the Fed acting within the rule of law? We tend to think of it as an entity unto itself, but it was created by Congress. Congress has the ability to regulate it up to and including repealing the Federal Reserve Act and doing away with it. Uh, so when, when the Fed does things like create a liquidity swap with foreign central banks, which is wildly beyond its purview as created back in 1913, when the Fed does things like create this temporary lending facility that it just uh, announced a few months back, uh, the, the BTFP, is that legal? Does that, is the Fed operating under the rule of law? What it's effectively doing, as Keith pointed out on his Twitter actually earlier today, I think, he said, well, okay, so the Fed decided to raise rates precipitously. Commercial banks are holding lots and lots of U.S. Treasury debt that was issued under much lower interest rates over the past, let's say, 10 years. So that bond debt is all underwater. So as a result, a lot of commercial banks are technically insolvent. So what does the Fed do? It comes along and says, hey, don't worry about it. You bought that bond at 100. It's now effectively worth 60 because it's paying a much lower interest rate than I could go out and get on the market. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, if you lend it to us as collateral, we'll wink and nod and say it's worth 100 and loan you 100. Now, that's pretty odd. Who, who loans 100 against an asset with a fair value of 60? Um, well, the Fed does. Is that legal? Is that effectively backed by the Treasury? Well, the Treasury is us, right? The Treasury is the uh, long-suffering uh, citizens of the United States. Yeah, I, I would argue that that's a pretty gray area, Ben, and that the, the FOMC is uh, acting like a cowboy or a renegade and just shooting from the hip and doing what it needs to do, making it up as it goes along. And, and to me, um, that's not the rule of law. Bailouts aren't the rule of law. Um, saving a uh, signature bank or Silicon Valley bank, that's not the rule of law. Uh, the rule of law is if you screw up, you go bankrupt and the investors take a haircut and the management and owners get fired and uh, the assets are revalued and sold to new owners. That's the rule of law. Uh, so the second scenario would be when the rule of law collapses, uh, there's a global financial crisis and the powers that be say, look, we've got all these countries around the world. They've all got their own central banks. They're all issuing their own bond debt independently. E even the countries within the Eurozone still have their own central banks issuing bond debt like Germany and Greece, uh, even though they use the Euro. So that's a really awkward scenario there. Um, and we just can't have this. We can't have the whole uh, world dependent uh, on uh, this, these currency wars between all these different central banks. Jim Rickards wrote some interest, an interesting book called Currency Wars a long time ago on this very subject. And so we need sort of one international standard, one international currency. Um, the IMF already has what they call SDR, special drawing rights, which could form the basis of this currency. 
they, they've talked about using, you know, at first, a basket of currencies and commodities to make it more understandable to people. Like you'd have six or seven of the biggest uh, currencies, maybe gold and some other uh, commodities in there. Uh, but over time, it would become a fiat currency effectively issued by the IMF. And the IMF would become the central bank to the world's uh, central banks. And that all of the, that these special drawing rights could become a new form of global reserve currency. Now that so that would be um, probably hard to imagine, not unthinkable. I think in a real global or worldwide depression, when people would be clamoring for solutions, they'd be clamoring for people to appear like adults in the room. Um, and so that would be sort of the doomsday scenario, which was 180 degrees opposite. Uh, scenario number one, whereby the U.S. dollar just sort of hangs in there. All right, Jeff. So doomsday scenario is a, a, a broader organization like the IMF says, hey, there's a lot of bad stuff going on with all these individual currencies, these individual bond markets. Here's what would be better. We'll centralize these all into one big currency. Listen, we'll have some euros, we'll have some dollars, we'll have some yen. It'll be fair. All the countries will be represented. We'll have one big, maybe even digital currency. And we'll make sure that we are the liquidity provider to the world. You don't want all these different uh, currencies. It's confusing. You know, who's issuing what? What if a central bank does something it's not supposed to? Instead, why don't we just centralize this? We'll have one big currency, like a one big happy family, and everything will be much better. Well, if you look at how our own central bank has grown so wildly in, in just 120 odd years beyond its original purpose, um, I would say something like that's not unthinkable. And the degree to which it becomes thinkable, I, I believe, is the degree to which we have a real global meltdown, uh, where all, almost all asset classes are going down at the same time, which we did see in 2008. People talked about diversification. People talked about hedging. But in 2008, almost everything went down at the same time, stocks, bonds, uh, you know, currencies, um, real estate, all kinds of things. I mean, gold hung in there as, as sort of the canary in the coal mine. But yes, yeah, so that's scenario number two. All right. What is scenario number three? Well, so number three is, I think, a, a breakdown of the U.S. dollar as the dominant reserve, reserve currency into uh, some competing, let's say, regional type arrangements. Um, we already have central banks sort of competing against one another. It depends on whether a particular country wants to stress exports or imports. Uh, China, for example, is a country that has openly and notoriously suppressed the value of its own currency in, in order to boost exports. And that's, in, in, that's one reason, not the only reason, that there's lots of cheap Chinese stuff in uh, stores around the world. So that's an example. Um, but the idea that the world, from a geopolitical standpoint, wants to engage in warfare with the United States, but perhaps not military warfare, because they think they would lose that. So how do we engage in warfare? How do we fight Uncle Sam? Well, we do so via economic arrangements. And there's already been lots of talk about this in all the podcasts and articles and financial press and FinTwit talking about de-dollarization. Well, this is viewed as a form of sort of Cold War. Right, that we need to knock the U.S. down a peg, and and to be fair, the U.S. deserves it because the U.S. has used its dollar as a tool of empire. 
The, the United States government and central bank has used the dollar to export inflation, to force the rest of the world to accept our hegemony, uh, to buy, you know, uh, buy military grade, you know, to buy weapon systems wildly beyond our, what we're actually taxing people to pay for. There's all kinds of ways in which we've weaponized the dollar. Um, I don't like analogies to real war because people who have served in a real war, that's a horrific thing. But nonetheless, we, we, you know, we think of this as low-grade economic warfare against the United States. So some of the scenarios which have uh, arisen would be you know, now a new geopolitical alliance given Putin's invasion of Ukraine between the Russians, the Chinese, maybe the Indians go along with that. And because these are large countries with large GDPs, that they can get together and form a currency or at least an economic trading arrangement where they don't use the dollar. Maybe you get Iran involved because Iran has a big oil bourse. And so if, if Iran were to accept uh, currencies other than the US dollar, uh, like the Euro, like the Yuan, and, you, and countries around the world could buy oil from Iran without needing dollars, that would be a blow to the dollar. And some people would argue that that's part of the reason that Uncle Sam has been belligerent towards the Iranians, um, not just because they're mean to women or they don't allow gay marriage or something like that, but actually because we would we would be harmed uh, by seeing Iran price oil and something other than dollars. Um, so you can see arrangements like that. There's been talks of a BRICS currency. Our friend Peter St. Ange did an interesting uh, little video today on his Twitter about the idea of a BRICS currency where these countries could get together and say, look, guys, We've all got tons of these dollars. We all realize that if the dollar goes down in value, we're all going to lose because, you know, it's like a game of musical chairs. None of us can dump all of our dollars at the same time because then everybody else would be scrambling to dump theirs. It would send a signal. Just like if Jeff Bezos started dumping all of his Amazon stock, that would probably uh, produce a run, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, on, on dumping Amazon. So, the, the, you know, the rest of the world is in a bit of a catch-22, and, and I mean the, you know, the Asian treasuries and central banks, uh, Brazil and South America, Russia, India, uh, all the big players, they have lots of treasuries and they have lots of dollars. So they can't just dump them easily. But at the same time, uh, you know, the dollar going down in value would hurt their short-term interest. It might help their long-term interest because they increasingly view the United States as, a, as at least an economic foe if not an outright geopolitical foe. So um, Peter Sainan suggested, what if gold, what if uh, China on its own or in conjunction with some of these other countries introduced a gold-backed currency that actually had um, some hardness to it, that actually put a limit on the, on the ability of the currency to be inflated, uh, unlike the yuan. I mean, that would be attractive. That would probably cause some capital flows into that currency. Uh, and they wouldn't need to have that much gold to back it. Uh, the Chinese central bank has been buying gold of late um, in large quantities, but you know they would only need, let's say, anywhere from two to five percent of the value of the currency out there to be held in, in actual physical gold. So um, you know there are scenarios like that. The irony here is that uh, these kind of currency wars that could produce a regional currency uh, would be. Uh, in terms of the global economy, would, would overall be inefficient. And there, there would be cost to this, there would be transaction costs. Um, you know, the world, in a sense, wants one currency. And it had one under gold uh, when things like the British pound 
were really, they called it the pound sterling. It was really backed by hard currency. And so, you know, anywhere you go around the world, you had, uh, you know, gold was understood as a form of money and it was tradable for the local currency. So the world kind of wants one currency to make doing business around the world, especially in a world today where we've got these giant shipping container, uh, you know, these giant ships going, plying their trades across the Atlantic and Pacific. You've got huge cargo planes. The world wants to do business with each other. We want to have the division of labor. We want to have specialization. We all benefit from that. And so having different currencies required to do, let's say, business within a, a China, India, Brazil consortium or an America, uh, Western Europe, Canada consortium, you know, th th that makes us all a little bit poor. But nonetheless, human nature is such that, um, you know, everybody wants to act in their interests. And so we get suspicious and, and nervous about other countries. You know, it wasn't that long ago people were talking about an Amero currency, a unified currency between Mexico, the United States, and Canada. They called it the Amero. Um, so this idea has been floated. It, it's out there. And, you know, if we had, let's say, another pandemic event, if we had a really significant terrorist event, if we had the, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia turn into something broader with America becoming involved or Western Europe becoming involved, then this sort of retreat into more closed or insular thinking, regional thinking, um, I think would be very attractive to countries that are just, they're pretty sick of being under the, the thumb of Uncle Sam's uh, economy and Uncle Sam's dollar. So I think uh, uh, the idea of regional currencies is a, is a real possibility. All right, Jeff, uh, I've heard option one, which I think is the most likely. I've heard option two, which I fear, um, I hope is not likely. And now I've heard option three, which again, I hope is not likely. And, and your point about gold at one point being money and then all of these different currencies simply being currencies, right? Ways to describe gold. Um, I found that Claims so interesting. Claims on gold. Claims on gold, correct. Um, I, I found that interesting. You know, we have trillions of dollars every single day being hedged in the FX market, you know, saying, well, I have yen and I have a dollar income, so I need to, you know, uh, hedge my yen exposure. And all of this is completely unnecessary when the world has won money, which is gold. Um, and, and we never had this insane, you know, currency swapping and, oh, we need all, your currency to have our currency and our currency is valued because of your currency. None of that was necessary under a gold standard. Everyone just had their own currency, which described a certain amount uh, of gold to be redeemed in that currency. All right, so let's give me option number four. The first one, not great, um, but maybe better than options two and three. Let's hear option number four. Well, option number four is the idea of a truly private or market currency and payment system emerging out of the ashes of what all these terrible governments and terrible central banks are doing all around the world. They all inflate as a matter of policy they all um, harm savers as a matter of policy. They all uh, uh, hurt our retirement savings. They all make our, our incomes, you know, buy less. They all encourage profligacy. They, you know, top to bottom, I can't think of it. Even the Swiss franc, which used to be viewed as sort of the, just the ultimate standard. I mean, even the Swiss Central Bank has lost its mind in the last 10 years, buying all kinds of FANG stocks and caving in to international pressure on their bank privacy and this and that. So, uh, you know, basically all national currencies and all national central banks, I think, um, have really been degraded. And that's that's a sad thing for the world. But nonetheless, that's where we are. 
And so if this were to go far enough, um, you could see a, a truly private currency and payment system emerging. Now, the two most likely scenarios for that at present would be some form of gold-backed or commodity-backed money, which was issued uh, in, you know, either in paper form or likely digital form, where you were using, let's say, a, a swipe card or a chip in your phone or whatever, but you had an account that was actually somewhere on earth. It wouldn't have to move around. Uh, backed by a physical commodity, probably gold would be most likely simply because we're familiar with that. There's a lot of it. Uh, it has enduring value, uh, subjective value, but enduring value. And you know, people understand it because there's still lots of people alive uh, who can remember, you know, even back to the World War II days uh, before Bretton Woods. Uh, the other would be, of course, be Bitcoin, which I think is far and away the leading cryptocurrency, the most robust cryptocurrency. Uh, but but both of these scenarios are where your your a new currency is emerging. First of all, uh, on the market, which would mean governments would kick and scream to try to regulate it, to try to ban it, to try to outlaw, it, to force it into black markets. Uh, not unthinkable. Black markets are used for lots of things. Have you know um, black markets flourish in the former Soviet Union. Black markets flourish today in all kinds of things like the drug trade, and black markets could flourish in the currency trade if governments are that hell-bent on trying to prevent us, us meaning the marketplace, human beings acting, acting voluntarily, uh, from avoiding the harms that they're placing on us with their inflationary policies. Uh, so this would be what Hayek dreamed about in, the, in his essay, The Denationalization of Money. Um, he spelled it that funny English way with an S instead of a Z, but nonetheless. Um, you know, this would be the dream that a, a truly private currency emerges and that like Uber, like Airbnb, the regulators just got behind the curve and it started to gain popularity and traction before they could really contain it. And that so they had to live with it. And to be fair, there are uh, members of Congress, uh, who, uh, Thomas Massey, um, the, you know, the, the uh, senator from Wyoming, um, gosh, tell me her name again. She's great. Cynthia Lummis, like Hummus, uh, you know, who are, who are not uh, against this, who, who would actually want to pass legislation that would force the Fed and the Treasury to allow it to not uh, make it illegal. But for the most part, you would have to expect more lawmakers to react like the terrible Brad Sherman, who represents the District of Los Angeles. I mean, he is just absolutely unhinged when it comes to Bitcoin, just wants it banned and wants its practitioners presumably put in jail if they don't cease and desist. Um, you know, so you could see a lot of pushback on this, but nonetheless, um, Hayek talked about this. He said, you know, you'd hope that something like this could happen kind of quietly and on the slide before they really understood the full ramifications of this. And I'm sure Bitcoin maxis would say that that's already the case, that Bitcoin is already in use it's been around long enough. It's held its value long enough. It's it's suffered enough uh, price crashes, uh, you know. And I'm not nearly as um, bearish on Bitcoin as Keith Weiner, for example. I, I think I, I view it very differently. But I also know uh, that gold and Bitcoin could exist quite comfortably. I think independently of one another. I think they could coexist just fine. I think there could be a market for both, just like there's a market for different kinds of automobiles. And I think they could almost serve different purposes. Uh, Bitcoin could serve a marketplace of people who are, uh, let's, let's just say, younger, more comfortable with uh, wild fluctuations 
uh, both on the purchaser side, but also on the merchant side. Um, and, and that, you know, Bitcoin can be seen as, as uh, you know, a more volatile currency, whereas gold could be seen as a more staid or steady currency. But nonetheless, uh, with the digital world before us, you no longer have to worry about gold coinage. You no longer have to worry about how do you pay for something that just costs a dollar twenty uh, when gold. Let's say I, I think, in my opinion, uh, you know, pretty soon at twenty five hundred dollars an ounce, you know, you no longer have to slice uh, slice that up. You've got digital means to spend gold in all kinds of forms, whether that sort of a debit card or a chip on your phone or whatever it might be. So I guess in in Jeff's happy world. Uh, th this private currency could emerge without bloodshed, without governments trying to jail people. And um, we could see the obsolescence. Uh, again, this is Jeff's happy world, Jeff's daydream. The obsolescence of these terrible central bankers, who I think at best are clueless technocratic mathematicians, at worst, uh, people who are enriching themselves at our expense and who have. Uh, very happy soft parachutes, the parachute, you know, soft landings arranged for themselves. Uh, so that would be scenario number four, truly private currency. And I think that's one that most of our listeners and viewers would hope for. Absolutely. And, and for those interested in gold and the workings of the plumbing of the working of a gold standard, earning interest, financing in gold, obviously monetary metals, we welcome the free market and competition of other cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, what have you. Uh, we'd love in the comments, why don't you give us your guess, which is most likely option one, two, three, or four. Maybe you have an option five that Jeff and I have not thought of. We want to thank you so much for joining us. Jeff, any final words before we end out here? No, I would just mention that none of this stuff matters without that aforementioned rule of law. Um, if you go back and read about you know, a pretty recent currency crisis in Argentina uh, around 1999 and 2000, you know, when you really see how people were forced to live there. It didn't become Mad Max. I mean, life went on. People still went to work. People still had groceries. People still had electricity. But unemployment went through the roof. Prices and inflation went through the roof. Electricity became sporadic. You'd have to go to, let's say, a mall that had really rigid private security in order to just even relax for an evening and watch a movie without worrying about crime. If, you, if someone rang your doorbell, you'd go up to the second floor and open your window and say, who's there? You know, you, you don't have to, things don't have to devolve into Mad Max. I mean, there are halfway scenarios between what we enjoy today in the United States and, and that Mad Max scenario. And I would say Argentina in the late 1990s provides a cautionary tale of that. So. Uh, I think we all need to work really hard to not let these politicians uh, turn us into a scenario like that. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Thank Debased, you, and we'll see you next Friday. Yes, you will.